1: I'm Adam McGee, and I'm Andrew Snyder, and you're listening to Captured in Celluloid on Make Time for This, proudly a of Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family, and on this episode, we are here to talk about Ferrari and the films of Michael Mann. Andrew, how are you doing? Doing great.
2: Glad to be here on the show, talking about Uh. Just a, a truly great and exhilarating filmmaker who, you know, well into the time where, you know, some people might think it's time to hang it up. Not Michael Mann. Not Michael Mann. He just comes in with another rip-roaring thriller action combo. And I could not be more excited to talk about his filmography and the film Ferrari. Uh, Forza... Michael Mann is that anything
1: nice yeah look at you um uh, <laughs> you've really you know dived into this project not that it was one sometimes you have a lot of like first time viewing to do that wasn't the case here maybe some some re-watching but you've maybe as you we'll come to light later and we do some kind of rankings like some of these films you've been like a true and another sicko you've watched multiple times in the space of a week you've just been, in the best possible way, there is no other way. You have been man pilled um, <laughs> over the past couple of weeks as we ramped up to this, and I don't know. Give us the give us the perspective from the cult of man. Yeah, two I ends, think it's... two ends to be clear on all of those mans.
2: Correct. Uh, although I would say that in most cases, men are probably largely responsible for most cult
1: activity and things and of that nature Colbert man activity probably too. Yeah, uh,
2: exactly. Uh, I think why I attacked the rewatches in particular with such uh, fervor is a, I had such a degree of distance from first watches. Like these were movies I watched as a kid in some cases too early. Like I had to go back down like memory banks to realize when I saw some of these and then seeing them again with fresh eyes, 20 years later or whenever it may be was just such a great experience. And that started with really liking Ferrari. Um, it's in the mix for my, for my top 10 films of the year as, as we shake that out at a later date. Um, and then I rewatched heat for the first time since probably seeing it on cable at some point in the last like uh, couple of years and was just absolutely blown away. So was excited to watch some of the Michael Mann films that I'd never seen and then rewatch the ones that I'd saw at an age where i mean you're really going in with a blank slate as much as possible it's like things like the insider and collateral um which revisiting like really hold up and like nobody does a thriller like michael mann he's just so incredible at building tension and and there's there's i don't I don't want to you know i don't want to sound like uh, a podcast that does their own research or anything but there's a uh, <laughs> like uh, a, a machismo to like the faceoffs in a lot of michael Man films that sometimes you just like really want to see on screen and it's just like you know mono and mono just good guy bad guy whatever it may be facing off uh winner take all situations and there are a lot of these movies that end that way there's also a degree of uh there's not romantic in like a like an actual uh physical or physical way where someone's like there's sexual tension or anything but there's a romantic connection to a degree between a lot of his heroes and villains in some of his films where Mm. it's like they have like a begrudging respect for one another and i'm just so like drawn to that uh, they're one and the same storytelling
1: yeah like that's that's the central thing they see they see themselves in each other like that's uh, i think if there's always a pretty good way to to sum up, the setup for all of man films is yeah, you may have a protagonist and an antagonist, but they will absolutely relate deeply to each other, develop something of a grudging fondness for each other, and as an audience, you tend to be able to see that too. Um, I I think there is definitely an element to man, and certainly to how man is discussed now, um, in that it's like elevated dudes being dudes. Like there is, You're, you are right to point out the elements of machismo, that's not, it's not something that he is going out of his way, like that is not the driving force of his films, He he does that in a more interesting and thoughtful way, but it certainly, it draws a certain kind of audience member, it draws a certain kind of reaction. But I think it engages on a much, much higher level, both in terms of what he's doing cinematically and often what he's doing thematically, as we've kind of outlined there. Man's films take place almost exclusively in this kind of grey area. It is not about, you know, the good, the bad, the black, the white. It's it's very much everyone is caught in between that in this kind of I don't know, everlasting nighttime and there are some generalizations there because his films are not always entirely one and the same. Ferrari is, to some extent, a break from a number of things that are commonly associated as, like, the staples of a Michael Mann film. And in other ways, it's exactly an, an extension of that. You know, a lot of people have very shrewdly kind of pointed out and drawn comparisons between Michael Mann himself and Enzo Ferrari, and identified that man seems to have taken a long-running interest in Ferrari in his storytelling because there's an element of how Ferrari ran his business, Ferrari's, I guess, drive for a certain kind of excellence and perfection that can be mapped pretty neatly onto man as the head of his own production line and the production of of film. So he is someone who he is 80 years old now. I, I'm always kind of somewhat surprised when I hear Michael Mann's age or I see it because it feels like he's much younger. I think his films have a vibrancy to them still. Um, he has not quite like many of his peers had a real dead zone in recent years, but there is no doubting that his career has slowed down very, very significantly from where it was mid '90s through to mid two thousands when. He was maybe at the zenith of his powers commercially in terms of what he had the influence to get made. Ferrari is his first film since Black Hat in 2015. He did make the or direct the pilot for the HBO show Tokyo Vice a little over a year ago. Um, but eight years since his last feature film and Black Hat, maybe a film we'll talk about later kind of a mess the fascinating mess for a lot of people but a mess all the same where it's only with a very recent home video release that man's own director's cut of that film is out there and i won't say something coherence but something closer to coherence might exist when it comes to black hat public enemies was certainly not the best thought of of the films of his career that came out in 2009 I like to kind of jump back to 06, 04, 01, which that's like in reverse order on Miami Vice Collateral Alley run. Going back before that, you got the Insider and Heat, like that five movie stretch is pretty definitive. And I don't say that to kind of overlook, you know, Man starting out with Thief and Manhunter coming along as his third feature. So it's kind of one of the most consistently interesting, and I I think consistent in that the drop-off has never really been too pronounced, and even when it has, there's been something interesting there when you look at his career overall. But things did slow down, and he's now back. He's made Ferrari, and it seems like he's back with a vengeance because it seems like where all systems go, full steam ahead for Heat 2. And we'll maybe talk a bit more about that at the end, but after a few years... Where honestly, I think his reputation burgeoned among a certain kind of film fan. Man is back in the public eye and maybe more popular and more emboldened than ever. And that's kind of interesting in its own right. What was your. So, to. I guess to dive a little bit deeper to what you're, what you're saying. So, I guess it speaks to man's somewhat ubiquitous nature as his biggest films were like big mainstream movies of the time where without anyone necessarily having to know or care who directed something a lot of people just have seen michael mann films throughout the 90s and 2000s what was your relationship to him though in the more in more of the now in more of the who andrew snyder is as a movie watcher in 2024 you may not have revisited his work for quite some time but what did that mean for where your opinion of Michael Mann sat even among I guess his cohort in terms of age like just where were you at in your mind on Michael Mann particularly because you hadn't done some of the revisiting that you now have for quite some time
2: oh I think it was very much an unfair uh kind of view of him uh because in my mind, when I thought of Michael Mann, I was like, you know what? He made Heat. Heat was a masterpiece. Heat was an all-timer. It's got Pacino and De Niro. The diner scene. The she's got a great ass. Uh, line reading from Pacino. Um, Hank Azaria. Uh, I watched. I realized I hadn't watched uh, Along Came Polly in my life, and I saw a clip of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman shooting basketball, and so I watched it. The other night, not very good, but uh, I really liked what uh, what uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was doing out there. Hank Azaria in that movie, uh, so that's why they had that. So it was pretty much just with a frame of reference around heat, and it's like when someone it would bring up the movie Collateral. I'd imagine you know Tom Cruise with his like silver fox hair running around uh, shooting a bunch of people in L.A. or or Jamie Fox like playing a nerdy cab driver and it wouldn't like even connect in my brain that Michael Mann directed that same with the insider. I probably never even heard of thief until the last few years. And so it was just like an unfair casting to the side of, of Michael Mann in my brain as a movie goer and someone who thinks they like movies and thinks they like to like, you know, go through the filmographies of the great directors. So it's really been an eye-opening experience, especially because when you consider just how mainstream and accessible some of his most either well-regarded films are, successful films are. Obviously, The Insider was not a hit at the box office, but it was something that uh, got a lot of awards recognition. Collateral, like one of the like the great like cable movie type movies that are just elevated so much higher among what you would normally get on tnt on a wednesday afternoon so that's kind of how i associated man and then when you like really just sit down and see where his career started especially like watching thief and seeing like how thief became not necessarily a template for what he would do but something that he could refer back to and something that is in the dna of a lot of his other films was eye-opening as well i mean that's just i mean james conn just Absolutely, absolutely going for it. Uh seen in the adoption agency has not aged well from a political uh, correctness and just like being a decent human being perspective. But Khan's really going for it. And then you see like Manhunter. Manhunter was a movie I did not see. I we you and I and everyone in the world knows the Will Graham Hannibal Lecter story. I had not seen this. Um William Peterson in the lead role. Uh, Brian Cox playing Hannibal Lecter like I love Manhunter now like I, if someone's like give me a thriller I've never seen to watch him like, but go watch Manhunter I, I think it's just riveting and like how has so that I'm, not got well, a,
1: a succession pop by the way because I, I yeah. just don't know how people didn't come out and be like oh Brian Cox and then someone somewhere at some point or like that Netflix went oh you know Silence of the Lambs well what about Hannibal Lecter played by Logan Roy and just got everyone be like, oh that sounds like my thing. I it kind of Me seeing me.
2: that with uh uh Anthony Hopkins so firmly entrenched in my mind as Hannibal Lecter should not work, but he's doing his own thing and he's doing is brian cox chewing on the scenery thing but it's so good too like and like what what is what was william peterson on like uh csi or ncis or something is that how he yes became, one, like... of,
1: one of them he did he spent a long long time on one of them It's kind of the majority of his career and he's great in this role of like
2: is a lot of times it's like subdued trauma and rage that sometimes has to like come out and like as he's like you know putting himself through mental torture to get in the brain space of serial killers like it's just a really great movie that i had no idea existed so this is your uh, i'll say i'll say this again like i said in the long podcast too long don't want to read it uh i'm sorry that happened or <laughs> or whatever the meme is like i had just sold michael Mann short and had been putting him in a box of what he is as a filmmaker and instead like i'm coming away thinking like he's made some of my favorite movies of the year that he's worked in. I mean, you know, one day, Adam, you and I will be one day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be 50 Ben Affleck voice. Um, and uh, you and I are going to sit down and we're going to make the Adam Andrew sight and sound list. And you know what? There's a man is going to pop up on that list for me.
1: Andrew, I do that like every two weeks as is. I don't need to be 50 for that, but it is true. Um, we will talk about our rankings later, but Man is one of those directors where it's like his top top five films certainly are all either five-star masterpieces or within touching distance of five-star masterpieces. So that's very rare company. And he's also, he's not like, a, he's not a Scorsese or Spielberg or even someone like Paul Schrader. He doesn't have this like massive sprawling filmography either. He didn't really have a a spell of his career where he was ever super prolific. I mean, 99 to 2006, four movies in that spell. That's as close as he gets, but he is still a kind of generally two, three, four year gap between movies throughout his career, which is just like, it's like a pretty normal steady pace. Um, a lot of directors, though, will have a spell where they kind of go beyond that, and certainly people in, like, man was man was coming at the tail end of it, starting in the eighties. Is kind of an interesting time for someone like him to get his start and to get a start as a features director. He had been around TV for quite some time, but it, it's quite late. Like, it's not not like he's old. I certainly don't want to imply that because it would make us feel really bad. By the time he makes teeth, but. He wasn't getting his start quite as young as some of the other filmmakers that we associate with being his peer. Um he made up for lost time, though, that was for sure. Let's let's go to Ferrari because we will circle back around and we'll we'll talk man in general and we'll talk about the best of the best in his filmography towards the end of this podcast. Ferrari is a film he has wanted to make for many, many years. It's also a project that has had its own kind of interesting history um, in the past few years where there were legitimate questions about is this thing ever going to come out? Um, True STX Films, who essentially were the main production company and held largely, you know, held control over this. A pretty significant, powerful player in recent years in the film industry unfortunately they had some major financial woes i still don't exactly know like it seemed like they were on the verge of bankruptcy insolvency about to disappear that hasn't quite happened but it made a very messy situation where the distribution deals um just kind of fall fell apart didn't really amount to anything and ultimately this had to go back to market where it was picked up by neon for the u.s sold individually to different distributors and other markets around the world landed at sky um in the uk and ireland i don't know that sky taken in other territories like for example italy where sky are a player or germany um but STX ended up with a very small holding of remaining international rights and there were complications just over how this film was about to come out there. So it kind of sat on the shelf for a while, ultimately. Um, Not all that long, but there was cause for concern over when is this going to be out in the world, which considering it's a Michael Mann movie and it's starring Adam Driver, that's certainly not nothing. I can't remember exactly where this fell on my most anticipated of last year. I do think it made my list. Um, it is worth saying. I guess the reaction has been, I don't not necessarily muted, but it hasn't been. Doesn't mean a rapturous reception. This movie, for example, has not featured at all in the awards conversation. Um, zero Academy Award no- nominees for Ferrari. And we can get into, you know, the merits of that and whether that's right or not. It's been an interesting rollout. I wonder, like, Neon is a great distributor for Atlanta, but I wonder if that'll have some knock-on effect. Because, spoiler alert, Andrew, I really, really like this film. Um, From the moment I saw it, it was honestly kind of everything I wanted it to be. But also it surprised me in a number of ways, um, which we'll, we'll maybe get to. What What was your feeling upon seeing Ferrari? I can't even remember at this point when you saw Ferrari, if you saw it. You saw it recently yeah, enough, in the, right?
2: In the theater, has been a while ago. Um, I can't remember if it was pre or post-Christmas. I think post-Christmas. It came out in like January around me, right? I don't remember. Um, but yeah, I... I think you probably liked it a little more than me, but I came away with it just thinking it was exactly what I wanted from it is the best way you described it. I mean, I think uh, Adam Driver, again, just an actor that makes such great decisions and getting to work with a diverse array of directors. And that is no different here. He's embodying a tortured soul who I think in some ways... uh, feels cursed by his existence and the burden he's placed on his shoulders and the life he's trying to like lay out for himself and his family and his family. Um, And so I think it's just, I had someone describe it to me that had seen it the other day Um, as slow. And I did not get that at all. I thought that I thought it was incredibly well paced and just kind of balances out the exhilaration of some of the driving set pieces, which I think are great. And like, Feel like larger than life in a way that i would expect and want from a michael mann film and like kind of brutal in some cases i think the first crash and death mm-hmm. scene that we see was like very affecting to me in the theater it's like it t- took me aback a bit i thought like oh like he he's really doing something with this the, s- um, the
1: second one is insane <laughs> I mean, we can talk about the more specifically later but the second one is
2: oh yeah that one is
1: is one of it's like, like, preparing like you. the most the first shocking one preparing you. <laughs> you just actually don't expect that in this kind of film which has kind of the veneer of oh yeah this is like this was a classic biopic I, I guess i get why someone might come out of it and feel it's slow because it's relative to what your expectations are and i could see how someone might go in being like ferrari right when I mean, you hear Ferrari, you're like, this is going to be fast-paced, it's going to be all racing, and then it's like, it's Michael Mann, where Mann is really and always has been about control as much as anything, and it's very much a film about like control and process and, you know, oversight. And pride, and just... to a degree? Sure, where you're, you're seeing this man try to move all the pieces across the board into the right positions in his life, in his business. Um, Largely failed to do so, but... kind of retained something that's borderline unflappable, and just... Uh, I don't know. Well, maybe he could be described as like, I'm I'm Enzo fucking Ferrari kind of energy to him, which Michael Mann probably has about himself, too. um Where... That's actually something I really liked. like. I think the best best scene of the film, for me, is a scene that it featured in some of the trailers, but it's when Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari is briefing his drivers um, about what it takes to win the Mille, Mille this signature road race that's really at the, the heart of the film. And he gives this great speech and it's just kind of, it distills, it distills a lot of man's mission to its essence, but it also, it does really feel like, yeah, this makes sense for getting to the heart of Ferrari, but it also like, I feel the film just kind of film closes in and around that moment where it feels like yeah, this is it. This is all of it. Like this is the skeleton key. Um. So I get, I get why someone might find it slow because it's called Ferrari and you might have a different expectation for what it is. And even like, let's say, for example, a film that I quite liked, I I don't think is really operating on the same level, but I did enjoy um, James Mangold's Ford versus Ferrari or Le Mans 66 or whatever it is in other parts of the world. That film has a a clippier quality to it you know which they're they're not all that differently kind of structured in terms of a balance of racing and you know behind the scenes of the business and potential family drama that's that kind of core is there in those two films but ferrari doesn't have like christian bale playing a cheeky cockney and matt damon being matt damon to just give a little bit more of a zip in a character sense, like ironically, I think it it leans into something that feels more Italian, even though this is a film with non Italian actors doing Italian accents. Which look, so, I
2: some more successful than others.
1: <laughs> is is that Celine Woodley? Yeah, it's
2: She doesn't purpose. really not a, not a great try
1: even.
2: But It's like there's, it's like, it's like, I don't know if it matters though.
1: I like that's what
2: I'm saying, but it's she doesn't, it's not a good accent, but it's like Coke, it's like Coke Zero, where there's like a little bit of extra taste from the zero sugar, but she's not really committing to it in a way that makes the performance bad, is what I'm saying. Like, she, there's like uh, keeping the train on the track is what she's
1: doing. I mean, a lot of people have criticized that performance and said it was bad. I, I didn't think it was bad, I'm not saying it's like the the centerpiece of the film or anything close to it. When you're making a choice and your actors are American or British or I should say North American, I think it's Canadians in this, the mix too, um, or wherever it might be, you know, well, Cruz, Spanish. When you're making a choice that they're all going to do Italian accents, there is a level of kind of creative freedom on the accent front where I do think it does enable someone to just be like I'm just going to do my own accent you know like in, in that way that someone like Liam Neeson is just always like yeah everyone else might be doing an accent in this movie I'm just I'm going to sound like Liam Neeson I think like that's fine when you're in that world um, you can get away with that more it didn't I don't think she's bad it didn't bother me I think she might be miscast like it's I don't quite understand how she was the actress who ended up in that role or they landed on for that um but I don't think her performance is inherently bad. There is like a there's a certain quality she has as a screen performer, which I don't wanna like make it reductive, but there is like kind of a like a a normal warmth to her. Which is always, that's I feel, that is what she represents being, for. Enzo what she represents in the
2: Cruz, yeah.
1: Who is like, is big and brash and loud, like is is Italian. So, I I feel like that part of it works. If other parts of it don't necessarily quite sing, like maybe that's the element of Shailene Woodley that they isolated and said, yeah, this is this is why she can play that part. This um, I don't want to
2: sound reductive either, but I got the same sense in Dumb Money. That there's something about Shailene Woodley when she's in certain roles and performances where she feels like someone that is like comforting to come home to. And I don't mean that yeah. in a weird way, but, but that's, like that, she keeps
1: in cast or keeps taking roles like that.
2: Yeah. So there's, there's something working on that level where it's like, for me at a certain point, like you just don't even think about the accent for anyone like anywhere. Also like, there are certain subset of movies and I think Les Mis is one of them where you're just like in the French Revolution times and everyone's speaking with an English accent. So who cares anymore?
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data,
1: Very much so. I I think it's interesting, I think, like, the kind of actress she's become. Even something like Big Little Lies, for as much as, like, her trauma is genuinely what that show was kind of anchored by, it's, again, it's like she's just, like, a very normal, decent single mother trying to do the best by her child. It's like how we're introduced to her, it's kind of how it carries through. You can go back to early in her career, and I think like something like the spectacular now, and again, like she's playing off Miles Teller, and it's like yeah, she's like the kind of she's just she's normal, she's decent, she's uncomplicated. It's like yeah, everyone everyone can see, everyone knows someone like this. So I don't know, have I missed something where like there's like an outsized or a really different Shailene Woodley performance? maybe maybe not she's good at that interesting choice for her to be in this film but i didn't hate it a lot of people didn't react very well to it and thought it was bad i didn't quite go to that extreme um i will say performances all around i I had a couple of regrets after our last episode because i really i just forgot to mention ferrari in oscar snubs and Penelope Cruz should have be been hmm. nominated in that weak ass supporting field like I, she's incredible. she is really great. A lot of people had kind of tipped her to be the the outsider to make the way in because she is a very highly respected and popular figure within the academy. um i I don't know why she's not there for this. maybe I suppose has she been out and about? Have I seen her doing any real campaigning? Maybe not, but it's a brilliant brilliant performance that it's like kind of anchoring the film um and giving things a level of credibility because uh, like, that's where if if we want to make cases that could casting be better in some other spots uh, you got to get it right at opposite adam driver opposite enzo and laura is pretty much pitch perfect so the film when it really kind of hums It hums because of what Penelope Cruz is doing as much as anything else. And Adam Driver, obviously we've seen him not that long ago play an iconic Italian figure in a film where everyone was speaking English and doing Italian accents. He was innocent in that, honestly. In hindsight, I haven't watched that since. Am I ever going to watch it again? Almost certainly not. Lady Gaga was pretty innocent in that film too, like... The stuff that really stands out in my brain we'll talk a lot about great al pacino as we get later can into I, this but al pacino jared leto oh okay
2: uh i've never logged it that was this was back in my you
1: rewatch it? that
2: no no i watched it the first time i watched it i don't think i watched it for the podcast purposes because you were like this is not going to factor in this is not on the andrew priority catch-up list i watched it on a plane <laughs>
1: Oh, it doesn't bother me. I don't care about that. I'm not like (laughs) the sanctity of Ridley Scott's House of Gucci must be respected. Jordan Trescu, he is listening, which he probably isn't because he I don't believe he's seen Ferrari yet. But he had, as he always has, a passion for one truly terrible in a funny way movie per year. House of Gucci was his cause for quite some time, so he might be upset with you about that. But
2: he really does do that, doesn't he? I love. Yeah, he always finds
1: one. He's, it's always He's a, one. It's like, I can see like the meme culture move, but when Jordan adopts a new movie as a curiosity of, Hey, like this could be, this could be like catastrophically bad in some ways to the point where it's hilarious. That's when Jordan taps in. I love um, that. Uh,
2: but anyway, I, I, I interrupted you to say, I, w- I want to stand on your corner of, uh, Adam driver and lady Gaga or, or in the clear for that. Um, uh, when will Lady Gaga have things to answer for later this year? Remains to be seen.
1: Like I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to bat for <laughs> Forward I could rewatch that, <laughs> and I may, I may want to revise that. But I do know at the time my take was certainly that well, Adam Driver is like perfectly. He's fine. He's Adam Driver here. He's very watchable. Um, and I know a lot of the discourse around the film at the time was. Not sure whether Adam Driver thought he was in a different movie to everyone else or everyone else thought they were in a different movie to the one Adam Driver was in. I, I, like, Adam Driver might actually have been right on that and everyone else might have gone wrong. And maybe someone, probably Jared Leto, went so far wrong that scene partner Al Pacino was like, oh, great, this is what we're doing. I can go up here. This is my favorite place to play. Um... We're devoting way too much time to House of Gucci and talking <laughs> about Ferrari. That's really sad. <laughs> All that is to set up the fact that I think Adam Driver is brilliant in this this film. I can't think of very many actors who could have pulled off kind of the gravitas, the quiet, like stoic gravitas of Enzo Ferrari. It's like a quiet power, like this really kind of big imposing figure physically. Like, whatever percentage of that is prosthetics or whatever, like, there is quite a transformation in how Driver looks, but also how he carries himself. He is a big, imposing presence, but he is, like, a tall, skinny guy. And there is something different to carrying, kind of, the bulk that Enzo Ferrari has and leaning into that power. And I just thought, like, the physicality, and I mean that just in, like, how he's moving across the screen, I found to be really, kind of, interesting and convincing. And it just felt like, I don't know, again, there have been some interesting Adam Driver quotes, and he's done some interesting press on this, where it feels like, to some extent, he tapped into something, Michael Mann, and saw the Michael Mann in this. And it's it's just, it's not a secret, because Mann has been so obsessed about getting this film, about this man-made, to the point where it's like, what what is it about this particular historical figure, Michael? Why... Why is this guy? What, what does he kind of do for you? I just think maybe Driver is getting taken for granted at this point um, because he is so routinely excellent. He is the go-to. He is the favorite of pretty much every like established author working. It is very, very rare that he is not in something that is kind of I'm mean, pretty heavyweight in one way or another now. If you look back through his filmography in recent years, I think the only exception is sixty-five, the sci-fi, which was, I think was that the two Quiet Place guys who wrote and directed it. Honestly, like a good concept that just didn't quite pan out. Amount to much. If you take that out of his filmography, Megalopolis is going to come soon from Francis Ford Coppola. Before that, he had White Noise. Of course, we know Baumbach, House of Gucci, Ridley Scott, The Last Jewel, Ridley Scott, Annette with Leos Carracks. um, Then Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, as he continues out being. Honestly, the like the best performer, the most memorable part of those Star Wars films, Marriage Story, again, with Baumbach, The Dead Don't Die with Jim Jarmusch, um, The Report with Scott C. Burns, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote for Terry Gilliam, Black Klansman. Spike Lee, Star Wars Last Jedi, Logan Lucky with Soderbergh, Meyerwitz with Noah Baumbach, Silence with Scorsese, Patterson with Jim Jarmusch, Midnight Special with Jeff Nichols. Like, I'm really pushing this and going back almost a decade in his filmography, but like, that takes us all the way back to Star Wars The Force Awakens. And he is working with really heavyweight filmmakers, with maybe one to two exceptions one exception if we let Scotty Burns be grouped in there and Scotty Burns is certainly a power screenwriter um someone who could command that kind of respect and attention It's an unbelievable run of people to work with and he's been routinely brilliant if not even better than that for a lot of that work and i don't know he just probably doesn't Get what he deserves. He probably doesn't get the love, the appreciation. He has never won an Academy Award. He has never won a BAFTA. He has never won a Golden Globe. He has never won a SAG Award. It seems off. Um, because if you were like to me, you know, you're starting a movie, you can cast any any leading man on the planet. Adam driver is going to be in your top two or three or you're doing it wrong because I, I do think he is someone who does have the potential to actually open wider. We may need to see the right projects come to fruition for that to pay off again. It's been a while now since the star Wars movies, but I don't think that kind of cultural cachet goes away. And he's also proved he can just, you know, dive in the sandbox with any of these great directors and, inhabit their worlds and really different filmmakers in that too. So he has built a career that I just think is pretty remarkable, is endlessly interesting, but like just his craft, just what it's like to watch Adam driver in a movie. I think there's not a lot of actors who are, let's say, under the age of 50 and he has just turned 40 who can kind of provide that kind of trail
2: yeah i i would agree with you there i mean he's a guy who well i've had to contradict myself because uh, i have not seen whatever the uh space landing different planet back in time into the future movie it's uh, not
1: terrible it's like it just kind of creaks it's not like the best sci-fi scripts that anyone has seen like it's it didn't pan out in a way like, say, The Creator or something like that, which is probably a slightly better in this kind of realm of sci-fi. But, it, like, it's not terrible.
2: I'll get around to it at some point. Uh, So, as I contradict myself, I would say that Adam Driver is someone that sells a movie to me. Like, even if I had... I think I was moving past my Michael Mann disrespect bubble that we talked about earlier um, just because of the distance that I had had um, from some of his films that I'd seen. Um, If if, Even if I was still in that bubble though, I think Adam Driver would sell me on this movie in general. Um, Yeah, I think he should have been nominated for Best Actor and when we get to the Adam and Andrew Oscars versus the real Oscars and you and I uh, think that largely did a very good job with the nominations. This is one that I think is the most egregious based on the movies I've seen and him
1: not being there. Um, Really in the best picture race or sorry, in the best actor race.
2: Yeah. Best actor race for me on a hundred percent. And you might disagree in about 24 hours. um,
1: But (laughs) Wow, that's three again. Well, we'll keep that. We won't give any more details on that. We'll see how that plays out. We'll have those conversations. Um, I I don't know if he would have made it into best actor for me, but he is. He's like right on the fringes. He certainly would have been deserving of that. You are right. I have one performance I need to see before I can kind of really lock in my opinions on that. Um, I think obviously. DiCaprio being snubbed is also pretty silly stuff. Ah, uh, yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. Good so, point. <laughs> so,
1: so that's that's the one I'm thinking of, where he still might just not get in, but look, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. I'll hear the argument. I think he's very, very close. It's one of those that just Ferrari not getting any real respect rules him out of it, and I don't know why that was the case. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just it's too tough. You've got, like, this is like a Scorsese year for the master filmmaker who's who's come and made this you know, historical epic and there's no pretense to be kind of had there. It's what Scorsese has done just has much more heft. It will have more staying power. It is a very different prospect to making a film about Enzo Ferrari. Um, but I, I still think there was some love that should have gone the way of this film. It certainly would have in terms of where I rank the best films of the year um and the best performances and many of the best technical elements so it's pretty disappointing um just because I think there's a kind of person who with even a little bit more juice and you know, the action is the juice Andrew uh for this film I think a lot more people would have gone to see this and this would have been a much bigger thing and i think if that had happened a lot of people really would have liked it i can already see this in like two years from now being something that like a certain type of person is being like oh yeah ferrari is like that's the real michael man shit particularly maybe as we we move through a cycle on black hat and it becomes more coherent that people just could kind of claim it i i think saying oh you know ferrari went under the radar might become something that's even more popular after the fact when we have a little bit of a remove particularly if he too goes ahead he gets that made and if that's good um, because that would obviously be a major major capstone in his career and something that would get a lot of noise Do you want to dive into any more specifics? I feel like I'm, I'm good with just having had a brief conversation about performances and a lot of that kind of stuff I will stress some of the sequences I mean the film is beautiful to look at um as you would expect from man I mean the production design is immaculate the cars look incredible the I mean the costume design also incredible all of the clothing is amazing I it just feels so kind of pristine and immaculate but it has when it needs to it has kind of that I don't know smear of oil on it um To really make it the film that it is. To make a a film about Enzo Ferrari. And a film about motor racing of that time. And as we alluded to earlier. It is as unflinching as honestly any film like this ever. Because usually you just develop a certain tone and style. And you're like yeah you know what. This is dangerous but we're not going to like. We're not going to make anyone see like limbs strewn across roads. Or that kind of thing listener, Michael Mann is going to make you see limbs through the crossroads it's like the stakes of this are really really significant this is a dangerous sport at a time where it's even more dangerous than it would be now and this is an extreme, extreme race the mili Million, the thousand miles that the film centres on I just have a lot of admiration for that because it's like even when you're like oh this is a certain kind of man, this is like the man of Ali I know what this kind of film is, and then he still found ways twice and to level it up from one to the next just kind of hit you like bang <laughs> and no, I am going further than all these other people go. I'm going further than this kind of film usually goes
2: uh yeah, I got audible gasps around me in the theater um yeah i I think it's a visually striking film, I think michael uh who was it someone asked driver like early in like a press junket like accusing the scenes of being cheesy he tells and... fuck off yeah.
1: yeah i don't know I mean... fuck off which hell yeah. yeah
2: so we're already at sorry tie. so that means i can say it i said i said te- uh, te- te-
1: it already yeah i knew it uh,
2: okay good uh let's let's be real I, adam uh, less important for this podcast than our more you know wholesome podcast that we that we do talking about the uh the milwaukee Brewers, gsbn.info hit that like and subscribe button watch this space um what's up guys anyway um fuck off to that guy as well because uh those scenes are perfect for what they're trying to accomplish and they work really well and i think the racing's really good like i don't know mm-hmm. if uh we touched on this like i love the the moments when someone will like crash and they're out of the race and they find like an opponent or a teammate even and they're just like all right i'll give you a ride to the next checkpoint kind of thing
1: patrick dempsey uh, picking with his incredible gray hair picking up uh, his main rival for us great
2: i thought i don't know if this is a hot take i don't know if you're gonna kick me off the podcast adam i know patrick dempsey does this in like his real life like he's a race car driver he loves this sort of thing i thought i thought he was so perfect for the role that he was cast in. Like wow, I, incredible. I didn't I didn't think I was gonna come into a movie podcast in twenty twenty four talking about how great I thought McDreamy was in a Michael Mann movie, but that's where we are. Um uh yeah and I just I think uh just the, the racing scenes like dropping you in like in a specific moment in what racing was and knowing like where Ferrari is today where they're the formula one team who just signed Lewis hamilton for for 2025 and are famous because of a netflix or famous in america i should say uh for a netflix documentary that shows how bumbling they are with their team decisions and then just seeing like this historic weight of what it takes to go from a guy who sells cars to race to like one of the most uh iconic brands in motorsports Uh, i think just uh, what
1: so, did I catch you right there? Because this is also, this is true, but I just find it was kind of fascinating. Did you say, so, Drive to Survive, like the the new age, we'll say, young American Formula 1 viewer. Ferrari, yeah, so Ferrari to them. Like, yeah. Well, see, that's exactly, that's the point. So, Ferrari to them represents, what do you think? When they just hear Ferrari. Um, The the logo and the red. But is it is it so that kind of bumbling and that decision making, which I mean, Ferrari now Lewis Hamilton will be will be as a Ferrari. So Ferrari's situation may change. They still have worked their own car. I am not an expert. I won't pretend to be at this point. It's a few years since I've watched Formula One, basically whenever everyone else the last three or four that.
2: years has has been just uh, a comedy of errors in terms of race strategy for Ferrari. So that's what the modern person who watched Netflix and is just watching this now, would think. I'm aware of that.
1: I'm aware of that. And that also would have been applicable to a lot of the years when I was watching F1, which aren't that far before that. Ferrari, though, is forever like gold standard excellence. Like, that's when I hear that. And that's because of my age and growing up in the peak of the Schumacher era. And I wasn't Mm -hmm. like, I was a kid. I wasn't a rabid F1 fan, but it was unavoidable. And particularly, I guess in this part of the world, he was such a colossal figure and Ferrari as a brand. um, I remember going, going like to visit family in the West of Ireland. And there was a hotel that they had, what was an old testing car, Eddie Irvine, the Northern Irish driver, would have driven for Ferrari around that time, too. So there was, I guess, there was an, an Irish element of connection. But going to this restaurant, they had one of the old Ferrari testing cars, like, suspended from the ceiling. And this was like, you know, I wasn't even, but like, it's Ferrari. Um, I remember going to the United States of America, Andrew. I was in, I was in the state of Florida, right, which may, may be... Maybe, like, important context where this is going to go, but I remember buying two pairs, which I believe I still own both of them to this day, of uh, Puma trainers. Ferrari. One, like, Ferrari red. Like, they're red, suede Ferrari trainers. Like, that's, to me, it always has been. I guess that's the Schumacher mystique but that is some of what I guess we see the foundational elements of building that mystique when in Italy and that carries on true as well it's like some of the magic of it so just it, when you said, when you said that <laughs> well yeah I guess that's true but when you said that it like it hit my ear in a funny way where I know that to be factually true but they really were like the peak of excellence at, at such a level that I'll just never get past that it's I mean it's like you you probably wouldn't be so rude but it's it is probably what Manchester United is for for lots of other people too where it's like that's that just won't go away it's like everyone will remember that it's it's why people do talk about them when they're bad um because there is just some there is an aura there is a mystique there is you know people love to love them love to hate them but it's there's something that like they're, they're kind of central to the party. And that's that is the quality of Ferrari. And I don't know, again, I think the the way with the production companies and everything, the way the distribution of this film evolved, I don't think would have been ideal. Like if this was, for example, you look at the year that Universal just have, if Universal had been like, all right, let's pick up Michael Mann's Ferrari movie and, you know, release this like they've done so much other stuff. It's got like an Oppenheimer style release. I really do think a wide enough audience would have been there to go and see a Ferrari movie. Like I just I think that exists. Um never quite got to it, but I think the power of Ferrari is significant enough that before you even get to Michael Mann or Adam Driver or any of those elements, it kind of it it has a certain something to it. And I guess that makes it all the the more impressive, all well, the more daunting to make a film about it, to tackle it, to make the, the excuse me, the Enzo Ferrari film as it now is going to be for the rest of the time. Got to have some stones to take that on. And Michael Mann certainly has some stones.
2: And to be fair to Ferrari, uh, they have been like jostling with Mercedes the last few years to decide who finishes second to Red Bull. But so it's not as bad as it was in like the, the pandemic season where they had taken quite a step back. Um, but yeah, that is, uh, that is true that some, some, some brands just have that iconic nature about them that you always associate them with greatness. That's like, for me, I don't say brands, that sounds horrible the way I say it, but with Ferrari, they
1: they are more institution. Like, I think that is like, they are, they are a cultural institution in Italy and that the, the film tries to kind of, and I think actually successfully ties into that too, uh, any family sense of, dynamic like, at the end, especially. family dynamic, but also like a post-war like national, where can we derive national pride? Where can Italy be, you know, a symbol of excellence? Ferrari was certainly something where much like, you know, football was in Italy where it was one of these things where as a country, they could always latch onto and it becomes something of a, a national symbol. I, I will be in Italy within a couple of weeks. I will be in the region Andrew, you best believe I was like, can I? It's not actually. I think it's Marianello, if I remember correctly, is where the town is in the film area. And that's where the Ferrari Museum is. So it's not quite Modena. I probably, if it was in Modena itself, I could have stopped off, seen the museum, did the tour, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, another time. I actually, I would like to do that because it does just feel like... would like, love we, to go to Modena we, with you. <laughs> you Let's we can go to modena we can go to um uh what's it called Astoria, whatever that that uh top 20 restaurant in the world that's in modena that's all like chef's table and stuff uh we can we can do the ferrari tour it's kind of like you know take our harley davidson museum experience and you know give us just a a little bit extra pizzazz that's that's got to be being in modena for the ferrari tour
2: on our last podcast I broke out a Reese Hoskins jersey out of nowhere. There's a Ferrari hat somewhere in this room, but I don't know I'm where sure it is. Sure, I've
1: no doubt there it's,
2: is. Is uh Carlos Sainz, you know. Yeah. Uh, um I th- I think he's a nice guy. I love I love the red. He's even even I can be one over. Yeah, great golfer. Uh uh, even I can be won over by an iconic brand when I see it on a Amazon uh discount list.
1: Even you. Nobody could be more easily won over than you, by, oh, I like that piece of sporting, you know, apparel. That's something I might like to wear. All right, Michael Mann rankings. Um, I am going to quickly run through. I have ranked the 12 Michael Mann feature films that I have seen. Andrew, you are going to kick in at about seven with kind of things that you've rewatched and you feel like you're very much... On firm footing of where, where you currently rank them. Um, a 12 yeah. for me, I'm going to fly through these, is The Keep. I do not think a whole lot of The Keep. I think A Failure, and I think Man himself, on everything that's out there about that film, would kind of echo that. Um Last of the Mohicans, which was the first time viewing for me for this episode. Just a very well-made, classical, 90s, 90s, am I writing that? Have I got the time? Yeah, 92. I think like, um, yeah. Hollywood epic. To me, what I don't like about it is I just don't feel Michael Mann in it to the same extent that I do in almost honestly everything else he's made. Um, At 10, I have Black Hat. I am not part of, you know, the Black Hat hive. And they are strong <laughs> in numbers and they are. I mean, do I want to be kin with these people? No, I probably don't. I have not yet seen the director's cut. I will probably buy the Black Hat, the new Arrow Blu-ray at some point, to watch the director's cut. And maybe then I will be converted. But I, Black Hat was just too flawed, and it was too incoherent. And yeah, it was kind of known to be incoherent in anyways unintentionally so that may have been fixed who knows we'll see i'll revisit someday uh, miami vice is that number nine for me miami vice has some of the coolest scenes of his entire filmography it looks absolutely glorious it just again yeah, doesn't pop for me in the way that most other michael man films do in terms of its story in terms of its narrative Public Enemies, I have eight. I have not seen Public Enemies in a long time. I wanted to re-watch for this. It's it's kind of a much maligned film in Man's filmography. I remember it being, I'm almost certain, the first Michael Mann film I ever saw, it, seeing it in a cinema and being blown away by the sound of the gunshots and that this did not sound like just any other, you know, thriller, action movie, whatever it might be. There's a very strong possibility that I just... Rank it a little bit more favorably because it was my gateway to Michael Mann, but in my head, having not seen it since probably within the year it was released, so I probably have seen it twice or three times, maybe maximum. Um, I'm kind of in a place where I want to stake out it. You know, Public Enemies might be pretty good, but I haven't actually rewatched really it, so I can't fully commit to that. So it's at number eight, and then we get to number seven, and I'll bring you in, Andrew. What's your number seven?
2: Yeah, so now this could be flip flopped with Ali if I had rewatched Ali, but I don't remember. So from number seven, I'm doing Miami Vice. Uh, you know, I love Colin Farrell. It's it's solid. It's, it's solid. It's fun. I, you know, I never watched the TV show, so I don't have that kind of like emotional connection to it. But like, if you're not doing anything on a Thursday night and you're looking for something to watch, throw on Miami Vice. You Have a great time.
1: Have you ever seen? Because I only saw this on Twitter like a week ago. Have you ever seen, there's a sequence from the pilot of Miami Vice that is set to Phil Collins in the air tonight. Have you seen I'm this? I'm not you familiar this? No. I'll link it to you when we're done. It is honestly, it is like two. I watched it. It came up on my Twitter feed and I was like, oh my God, I've got to go and watch all of Miami Vice. It is like the two and a half best minutes of television I've ever seen. I have no doubt the rest of the show doesn't even like hold a candle to it. <laughs> It is so compelling in every way. The filmmaking is so good. The very rarely has like a vibe just emanated off a TV show in that same way, which as much as I was not man's direction, you can just kind of feel man's fingerprints all over that in terms of shaping. This is what this TV show is going to be, what it's going to feel like. If anyone hasn't seen, isn't familiar with that sequence, Just pull up. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Just Miami Vice, Phil Collins in the air tonight, and you'll thank me later. Uh, Number seven for me is Ali, So, which you said it could have kind of flip-flopped. This is one I actually really watched recently, Um, which is weird because an Ali movie is something that I would have sought out. Just kind of, this is the man film that didn't get a good home video release. Um, I had a DVD not a Blu-ray. I don't think it's ever got a Blu-ray release in this part of the world. It's never really streaming. And so I've just kind of probably been waiting, being like, "Is can I see this in HD? Is there a 4K version is coming, whatever it might be, and it never happened. Took the plunge recently, was streaming, and uh, I think a little laborious in places. I think a little bit unfocused. Ali film is a very tough one to do, but I think a really good Will Smith performance And again, just certain moments that are, like, pure man, that are so, like, alive and vivid, and you can feel the detail, you can feel the precision of what he's doing. And in those moments, it's like no one else could tell Ali's story this way, you know? Um, It's something that maybe it's worth touching on now, because even in time of performances in Ferrari, we might have honed in enough, is I... Mann is talked about as a great stylist, and he is one of the great stylists of his era. He does not get enough credit for just how much he is an actor's director. He is famously difficult to work for. I'm not going to say all the actors have a great time when they're on a Michael Mann set, but he has an unerring knack for getting the best out of actors and pulling something out of actors that isn't always apparent. And I think as much as Will Smith has done plenty of good work, his performance of Ali is certainly up there with some of his best, and I'm I'm not surprised that Michael Mann was able to tap into that. Is it your number six, though, if you're saying it could have flip flipped, or was Ali's on the outside of your seven? Was yeah, that the, way that the was? outside. Uh, Ferrari's
2: okay. my number six. So the movie
1: we just spent. Ferrari is also my number six. Um, like, I just, I really like this movie. I think this five is borderline impossible to break into. I really think it is a pretty astonishing collection of films. Like, Heat 2 does have the potential to get there because it is a sequel to Heat. And if that actually does come to fruition and he pulls that off, maybe, maybe you can get into that rarefied territory. But Ferrari is a really, really, really good if not great, it's really, really, really good movie, but it speaks volumes to what else Man has done that I just think his top five is kind of mind blowing the levels he's reached.
2: Number five for me is Thief, uh, which was was it Michael Mann's first film?
1: Um, First feature. I mean, plenty of TV work, TV movies, but it, yeah, and what would be I guess the strictest definition of that or how most people describe it? You could say it's his first,
2: yeah, I mean, the like I mentioned the James Con performance and then just kind of the first taste of like the kind of hero slash villain archetype character that man loves to play with, people that are tortured to a degree that want better. That think they deserve it sometimes and realize they don't at others. Um, and I think there, there's some really just riveting like, uh, drilling moments. Like I never know, knew I'd be so enamored with drilling, but I saw Thief and Sexy Beast from Jonathan Glazer in the same week, and you know just a lot of great like, uh, drilling heist action and just like hard grizzled uh, criminal just in a face off with corrupt cops, and it's just like. I've been eating that stuff up this week. So Thief scratches that itch. And I think it's got a really impactful ending that I won't say anything else about.
1: Yeah, I mean, just an iconic Jimmy Kahn performance. The Tangerine Dream score is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. and It's one of those... I don't... I know, I was trying to think... Did we talk about that on our episodes for the bear? I mean, it would have been on me and I don't know if we did, which I regret. Um, But like the choice in Forks, Richie's episode, and I think the best episode of that show to date um, to bring the Thief score in. And Richie is established canonically as a colossal Michael Manhead. Um, his his password being a a reference to Miami Vice, even so, <laughs> I, I think also is there a Heat poster up in the background in like it's home somewhere. Richie Richie is full on a Michael Manhead um, but yeah, the teeth f- score from Tangerine Dream is one of the all time great scores. The film is just so stunning to look at, like particularly the sequence at the at the car lot. With the neon. As Khan is walking back through the cars. Very few people have ever shot. Nighttime and neon in that way. It is completely typical of man. And something that he always gets. You know a lot of credit for. Is he manages to capture that. Where you're like. God that's an amazing. Nighttime sequence. While also capturing. The character of. The given place. Um, I think man is best known, best associated for having directed one of the most seminal kind of l a movies in heat and you could look at man's sonography beyond that, and we will, and there are other great l a movies um that he has made, but Teef does that same thing for Chicago and for capturing Chicago at night and there is on, on both occasions I've been to Chicago. There is a certain kind of magical quality to the light, to the street lights, to everything. Do you know what I'm talking about in terms of the particular like it's different to it's different to how New York is lit at night, for example. Your actual experience of being there. I've always found there's something kind of particularly unique. Um in something terms about of the it's space
2: and the water, I think that
1: it, it's that, but it's even like I don't know, like the color of the bulb. There's a slight, I always find when I'm in Chicago, there's like a warmth to the streetlights. It's like, Mm. it's very subtle, but it it does create a very different feel. And then I think we don't have to get into comparing different cities and talk, about it. Is it is known for being a particularly well-designed skyline, for being a very aesthetically pleasing kind of downtown city, where, yeah, I think down by the water and with those buildings, with that kind of light around it, it just, creates a certain kind of magic, and you get some of that in teeth, and then you get, of course, man taking it way beyond that to, to more of the outskirts and the rougher edges of Chicago, but so much from, like, the kind of the safe cracking sequences, the sparks flying, and that kind of, those ideas that are central to your character, but also kind of inform, like, the almost flaring effects of light that you see throughout the film, it's just a. Gorgeous, gorgeous film to look at.
2: Uh, next up for me, number four is Collateral. Um, just like a really propulsive film. Uh, Tom Cruise and Jamie Fox, and kind of uh one of those kind of villain hero face offs that uh, man likes to do, but in a much different way with Fox as the cab driver and tom cruise is the the hitman, man uh, so charming in his evilness throughout this entire film i guess tom cruise being charming despite something is just explains his entire existence in hollywood from whenever to now um mark ruffalo was like a cop with an earring kind of a thing going on and like a weird goatee <laughs> if i'm remembering that correctly like he does yeah. uh <laughs> like like I was, I told you I saw this twice in the last week because I I wanted something in my eyeballs as I was playing be the show. Shout out, no free ads. Uh, so I rewatched it a second time, and I'm like, man, collateral just rules. Um, my maybe my favorite cruise performance. I'd have to go down a list. We'll I'm sure we've done a cruise pod to a degree. Like when we talked about uh, Mission Impossible, and we'll talk about them later in the year. Um, like a film that I. It, you hear like the the Bill Simmons of the world just bring up Collateral for no reason. It's like one of his five movies that he'll bring up often.
1: All uh, five of his movies are Michael Mann movies, which is also, I guess, we're noting in this context.
2: <laughs> heat and Collateral, and you know he also does Miami Vice, very warranted. And just like the you're walking through, like it's also the comedian Jim Gaffigan bit where, uh, he talks about like how he saw Heat five years late. And he's like, but I want to talk about it now. That's how I feel. Also, when I watch Collateral, and me and my brother had a nice long conversation about it after I watched it. So it was good.
1: I mean, I that fully applies to me. I probably watched it first, maybe it could be three or four years ago now, but it was like out there for a very long time. But by the way, it is also my number four. We are in lockstep here, Andrew. Um, where. I, it's just like, yeah, I've seen like just plenty of stills of it, and you see Cruz with his like wild gray hair and Michael Mann. Sure, I'm sure, it's cool, but it's just, I don't know, there's something about it that for whatever reason I was dumb. I was like, that just kind of feels like a, I don't know, like a three and a half to four star, like really well made thriller. The only thing that's like, yeah, that's great, like that's going to be enjoyable. Like, I won't go wrong on that, but I just never fully really appreciate just how great collateral is. And I do think, to your point, uh, not to not to be disparaging or to put a knock on that, but I do think the like just being like, "Oh, Bill Simmons on show up about collateral," where that pushes another kind of person away from it too. I, it doesn't necessarily help because I just think collateral is like what you think it is, and you probably think it's pretty good for whatever it is it's like no collateral rips like collateral is up there again with the the best of man um jamie fox is someone that just generally i have not vibed with as an actor throughout his career jamie fox is also great in that movie but cruise is electric absolutely electric again to that conversation like michael Mann getting the best out of his actors and getting a best out like Big stars, big, powerful acting presences, guys with egos. Like, man is a commanding, demanding presence. Like, there isn't just any old director who can be like, get me Tom Cruise and Jimmy Kahn and Russell Crowe and Al Pacino and De Niro. Like, these are a certain type of actor. They're like... Yeah, they're, they're men's men. They're like, there's an old-fashioned quality to, you know, I am the big actor here. And generally, his leading men have a physical presence to him as well. He can go toe-to-toe to command that. He can kind of control the movie with that. In ways that a lot of other directors don't. You can see he he grabs their respect. Collateral, honestly, I didn't get to re-watch Collateral for this. And maybe I'll, like, rush through the last few minutes here so that I can get Collateral watched right after this. Because... It's so much fun.
2: It is. Uh, highly recommend three watch even when you probably shouldn't. Uh, number three for me. I've already talked about this film, is Manhunter, um, which is his Will Graham Hannibal Lecter tale. Adam and I are chalk in the top five. This is and we've wild. really on
1: uh, yeah, the top six. Um, and we didn't oh, yeah. consult. We didn't consult no. at all. Uh, and Andrew was. Actually, thought he was gonna come in with some upset. He said that, and I said, "I don't think so. I don't. I really don't see where we're gonna diverge here, and we haven't at all."
2: I thought, I thought my Manhunter above Collateral was gonna be the hot take for you. Uh love this movie after my first viewing. We'll watch it again at some point. Um, yeah, everything I said before, but uh, I don't know. If it, it feels very kind of of the time too, but like, just. Timeless as well, and uh, some great like one one thing he does really well is like one guy's in a hotel and he's talking to like a cop or a journalist or something. Well, his and just, Favorite like, things the, to do. The tension of those scenes and Will Graham during some of his moments where he's displaced, where like you know he was done with that life, you know he had a tra- traumatic experience, but he's back in the game because he's the best for this purpose. Like I love that whole aspect of Manhunter as well. Like I want to get a screen and I'm just going to stage a Manhunter Silence of the Lamb double feature for the people and we're just going to go all out on Lecter. Uh, but uh, I, I cede my time to the committee.
1: Like, I mean, that's man. There's like a tense procedural back and forth conversation often over a phone. We'll be followed up by our protagonist staring out over the water and, you know, some ambient score playing and then he makes a big decision and we're like hell yeah let's ride i guess it's kind of like man my numbers it works um uh, manhunter like the only thing i could maybe come up with for the question that i myself posed earlier of like why is this why more people not end up seeing manhunter given the success of silence of the lambs why is why did that not propel it to a place where it kind of ascended to uh a more prominent spot culturally, or why wasn't it the the Brian Cox succession of it all that finally did that? honestly, probably the answer might be the ways in that it is radically not mainstream. and one is like it allows itself to be deeply, deeply messed up and disturbing, and I just think it has a an air and a tone of menace that is really kind of like evil and nasty. Like there is there is something unsettling there for as entertaining as it is, as compulsive as I find that. I, I can see a certain type of audience member of a more sensitive disposition who I guess would be immediately put off by that. I think Tom Noonan's performance is also deeply, deeply unsettling. Uh, everything around that character, how he looks, how he moves is kind of you know messed up. Um and to extend it further I think in an actual filmmaking sense when I watched it for the first time I loved basically every minute of the movie I was having such a great time couldn't have been more impressed and then you get to kind of the big finale and I like it took my breath away when all of a sudden man is just like in his bag and it's like jump cuts everywhere you've got one of like the most stylish like big bombastic like there's an action element on an on a, on its scale it's not anything large but man makes it so kind of alive and dynamic but also jarring and sharp by what he does just with the most simple tools of the filmic trade and with his editing like <laughs> there are very very few Hollywood films that I can think of I honestly there may not be one that exists that, has a final climactic sequence that is edited with just endless jump cuts in that way. Like that is just so radical. That is so like just pure Godardian in its construction. I was like, God, this is the coolest thing ever. Cause it's just, it's kind of like, it's big and it's, it's what you want it to be in terms of what's actually happening on the screen. But it's also, Man just being like, yeah, I can. You think that's cool? Watch, watch how I'll stage this. Watch how I'll, watch how I'll edit this, and let's dial this up another level. So, in some ways, I think it's a really radical film. Um, it's like it's completely normal. It is as good as a mainstream movie as it can be until the moment where, every now and then, man just puts his thumb on the scales and things get a little bit nastier. They get a little bit more experimental even in the filmmaking it's incredible and you mentioned them earlier william peterson is not an actor that i can kind of dish out a sermon here about you know the merits of his career and all the great work he's done he's brilliant in this film and it's not just him i i I loved um dennis farina's fbi agent character I, I just, I don't I really love him. Oh my God. Voice. Yes. Yes. I'd absolutely. Like so, so magnetic and just so central again to when you're having these scenes and there's like these phone conversations or there's debates and rooms between different investigators. It's like you need someone like him to drag you in and be like, yeah, I care about this beyond. Will Graham. I care about this beyond Hannibal Lecter over there. Just a, Really, brilliant, brilliant movie if you haven't seen manhunter which i'm sure a lot of people haven't i would recommend remedying it immediately number two on both our lists
2: uh i did some digging on this adam um about my first watch of this probably circa 2002 um this is the insider starring russell crowe and al pacino uh, nominated for I think what was it seven Academy Awards? Uh, at the time, uh, so movie did not perform well at the box office, but was critically acclaimed. I went in the theaters with a friend, Adam, to see A Beautiful Mind in ninety nine or two thousand, whenever that came out. Uh, two thousand one, actually. So The Insider came out a few years before. At some point, I know why, that why seen was this...
1: that? Why was what was the Beautiful Mind thing? I know, was well, like, obviously a big movie, my, but like I've uh, never my... seen a Beautiful Mind.
2: And I haven't seen it since. Um, my friend's mother was a professor. And so the whole like Nobel thing of it all like really appealed to her. So she took a to see a beautiful mind instead of like whatever we should have been seeing at that time. But
1: it anyway, is my understanding I... though that like as much as, yeah, professor up front, that movie is about more than just being a professor. Like it's a guy luck going on. It's maybe like for I don't know, ten year old kids. It's it's kind of a tough hang.
2: Uh For whatever reason, I thought I liked it at the time.
1: I I could be Uh, wrong. I mean, Ron Howard did make it, so maybe it's not as tough a hang as I imagined it being without having seen it.
2: I mean, from an excuse me, like emotional or content purpose, you know, dealing with schizophrenia and seeing visions of people that aren't there, you know, it's a little heavy for what I should have been seeing at that time. Um, but I think I, I saw Russell Crowe on a blockbuster. Would it have been VHS or DVD? I don't remember. Probably VHS of The Insider. And I remember seeing it at a time where I shouldn't have. And I was asking my mom about this today, actually. And I was like, hey, did you you and dad see The Insider back in the day? And she's like, no, I don't know what that is. And I was like, I swear I saw it. And she was like, I was like, was it at your mom's house? She's like, it's got to be one of those R-rated movies that she showed you without asking us. And then... I got mad at you guys about it. And the other one I remember vividly was Mel Gibson's We Were Soldiers. (laughs) So, uh, which was decidedly something that should not have been shown more so than The Insider was. The Insider, you know, there was just some coarse language and some, you know, scary moments of stalking. But anyway, probably my first viewing since seeing that as my grandmother, like, ripped cigarettes in the background and me and my brother ate pizza and candy immersive Uh,
1: experience i'll see yeah
2: so perfect perfect rewatch and you you may you may think i'm being silly with this but there's a genre of film that you and i really like Mm -hmm. Uh, i think we and that's a newspaper film and this has the same feeling of watching a newspaper film it's
1: investigative in the same way like yes
2: and we get uh Russell Crowe of that era could play sort of like a soft masculinity that's like the veneer for something, not necessarily more sinister, but like there's depth and flaws there and like I don't know that I necessarily associate him with that in the modern era of what Russell Crowe is as a personality or an actor. And then also, you pair that with Pacino doing what he may have done in a cop film, but as a 60 minutes producer Christopher Plummer playing Michael Wallace and just like a mm. I don't that's a just a knockout performance. Uh Christopher Plummer as kind of a tertiary character so It's incredible. And then just I don't know just the again I talk about him building tension throughout this world and it's not necessarily, you know, bank thieves and cops in this scenario but it's the tobacco industry, the media and like, you know, whistleblowers. And I think it's just a very captivating thriller during like an era where my parents would be like, what's your favorite kind of genre? They'd say, you know, it's a, it's a thriller. I want to see like one of those types of movies. And I think it's just the highest version of that sort of movie in the 90s, 2000 era. Like, I think it's something that if, if it wasn't for another film on this list, it'd be something of talking about a filmmaker's master work. And I mean, I was just so shocked by, like, how mainstream and accessible it felt. But with just, like, the, that degree of quality that you just don't get from kind of a movie like that today. Like, I'm thinking of something, like, I, I haven't seen this since it came out. But, like, people loved, like, The Lincoln Lawyer. And I think it's, like, something, like, like with this shiny veneer of, like, a Hollywood mainstream film. Which uh, I just, think like, spot- it-
1: Spotlight is the, the reasons comparison yeah. i like spotlight a lot but this this is operating on a level above spotlight but like yeah. i mean I, I spotlight is actually really really good and i know you and i have been incredibly fond of that from the beginning i, I only saw people tweeting about how great spotlight is this week in a way which it's like it already feels like it's done its cycle of being reclaimed because it became like a, a punchline i think in part because people just like to like meme the the mark ruffalo of it all but turns out when mark ruffalo just plays I stand, Bruce Banner I stand by in the background scene. of scenes. It's incredible. <laughs> it's amazing. It, are you are you not entertained to quote Russell Crowe? I mean, that's what's <laughs> what you want. You want Mark Ruffalo out there doing that. Um, The Insider. If not for the Irishman, like this is the last great Al Pacino performance. Um by quite a distance. I mean, I, I think he's great in once upon a time in Hollywood, but that is that is a tertiary role. Like this is this is true Al Pacino carrying a film and to that extent it may still be kind of the best of that. It's quite a while ago. That part of it is kind of jarring. But it again seeks to what man was able to get out of Pacino. This is like it's of course it's not quiet because there are scenes where he he lets go, he cuts loose. But it is largely a much quieter Pacino performance too than some of his others. Certainly than a lot of what he's done since that. And I, I think kind of as much as the the light and the shade exists in a later career Pacino and it's where it's not just about oh you know I really like to let rip and it's fun to let rip and I mean if you've got Al Pacino in your movie it kind of feels like as a director you'd be like god I really need to give an opportunity for Al Pacino to go Al Pacino um this is one of those spots where it's just Michael Mann just, he got it. He got the best out of him. He got the best out of him in heat. He got the best out of him here. And I think you get a really well-rounded and interesting later career Al Pacino as a result of the work that Michael Mann does with him. Um, I'll push back a little bit on your Russell Crowe. I think like, this is a really fascinating movie for Russell Crowe because, yeah, you might have a beautiful mind in there. I wouldn't go so far to say though that this was like a time where Pro you'd associate with like a vulnerability or this like he'd be your go-to guy for like kind of, I don't know a sensitive man at the same time because obviously a year after this comes out, Gladiator comes out, but maybe more importantly two years before this came out. Russell Crowe is just absolutely kicking the shit out of everyone in LA Confidential, a film that it feels like every time he comes on screen, he'll just start like pummeling someone's face and then ask them questions in what is one of the most electric screen performances like of all time. One of the most electric, like, guy is going to move up a level and you're just like, oh yeah. Like, you watch LA Confidential and it's, there are no questions at all. Zero over. How did Russell Crowe go from where he was to what the next few years of his career became, where he was, I mean, the leading man, the biggest star on the planet for a few years? It's like, you see LA Confidential, you get it. He does get to show his range here, but if anything, I think this is kind of... I'd frame it the reverse to you. I think this is kind of the break in the middle as opposed to a point on a curve before more of his performances leaned into a masculinity. It's like the masculinity is always first and foremost. It's a quieter masculinity here, but that that was somewhat breaking from what he was really starting to make his name for at that time.
2: Yeah. I mean, it looks like kind of the start of like a handful of those, like I would describe. Obviously I saw these in reverse order, so I'm getting, but like even in a boxing movie, like Cinderella man, like Mm -hmm. the Jim Braddock character is kind of like the, every man kind of a thing but yeah it's it speaks to just like how looking back like my brain doesn't wrap my mind around like the versatility of the characters that russell crowe could play back then because to your point it just, he does have that big physical like brooding uh masculinity too that can he can tap into as well <laughs> obviously gladiator um i've never seen la confidential is that something oh
1: andrew oh 100 percent one of my favorites Incredible, incredible movie. Uh, Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce in particular, like the one-two punch of them and how, how they play off of each other in that film is just electric. Danny DeVito's like, voiceover, like the whole style, the shape of that film, amazing. And probably a film that, because of Kevin Spacey's part in it, I think is probably started to be talked about less, which is really unfortunate because of what the film is overall is such a fun fun ride um but you anyone else listening if you haven't seen LA Confidential please please check it out I mean that's my favorite Russell Crowe performance by quite a long way I do love him in the insider too um you're right to shout out Christopher Plummer such an interesting performance as well because of the fact that is a known commodity to play Mike Wallace and to to capture some part of the Mike Wallace essence or the gravitas, but not necessarily come near trying to caricature it. It's just such an endlessly engrossing film. And like with subject matter too, that is interesting. You know, it's not just that the the film is like functioning well enough as a movie that you're interested. I think it's doing all of that, but then you get into it and you're like, yeah, this is this is big, important stuff and it's interesting debate, and the framing of it is, you know, it becomes something where you really are compelled in a way that I think is just a step beyond oh, this is this is great filmmaking. This is someone who knows how to get an audience engaged. I think a lot of the kind of the characters and the stakes around it just make the thing really, really sing. Brilliant movie.
2: Number one, Andrew. Our dual number ones, I'll turn it over to you to lead off this conversation, but, I mean, I was going to phrase this in a way that, uh, you know what, it fits in a Michael Mann uh, discussion, Adam. If you were to put a gun to my head and to ask me what my favorite 90s movie was, I think I had an answer going into this process, and it would be unequivocally Goodfellas. Heat, our number one movie, is in the conversation for me. I think I still lean Goodfellas, but it <laughs> made me think a, about the question.
1: That's such a cop-out. I thought you were really going bold there. Um, I was like, oh, he's just going to be like, Heat's my number one. He's like, well, oh, the Goodfellas is still my number one, but he can maybe be number two. Um, you told
2: me that I don't sit on fences when it comes to sports. Well, so that, I'll was, do that was a fan
1: setting. Uh, for what it's worth, I'll say that's entirely valid because Goodfellas is the greatest movie of the 1990s. Um, I, you know what, I haven't thought it true, so I could maybe come up with a whole bunch of stuff in a few minutes and be like, "Oh, I probably should go in there," but there's not going to be a there's not going to be a whole lot really. Heat is one of my favorite films of all time. It is just a truly religious experience. True story: I rang in the new year with Heat this year. I uh, don't know why, but I did decide to do that. Uh, like, will I will avoid spoilers for the film possibly? But basically, the film's conclusion was was just wrapping up. Moby was kicking in, um, just as the clock struck twelve. And honestly, maybe I should do that every year. Ah, uh, never been a big New Year's person. I think it's dumb, Andrew. You know, we can't stop time. We just, you know, a number changes at the end of the year. And we get on with it. We go again. Heat, though, Heat was what New Year's was all about. If everyone just watched Heat and talked about Heat on New Year's, I could probably get in on it. Last year, I had the opportunity for the first time to see Heat on the big screen. One of the very best cinematic experiences of my entire life. Just, you cannot overstate just how much this movie rips, just how much every shot you feel like it is going to rip the skin off your skull. Nobody does this has ever done it like Michael Mann. And it is the fact that like this is kind of what a lot of this boils down to when we talk about man and what makes man special. Like you get the shootout, and he you get kind of the core set pieces of heat. They are better than what you are going to see in any action film. Any action film, any shootout in the history of cinema man's done it better heat is the gold standard the film does not have to be as good in every other way around that as it is right it like it has its place in a pantheon it would please basically everyone everyone who's going and wants to be like yeah you know something really fun about a great action movie you would come out of that and you'd be like god that delivered wasn't that scene amazing but Mann makes a great movie around it. He populates it with incredible actors. He tells great stories. And you end up with something that is just honestly as compelling as it could be. Uh, he is renowned for being the famous, the meeting points, the confrontation of Pacino and De Niro. There are very few directors who could have been like better suited to get the opportunity to put those guys in a scene together, in a frame, and to understand how to do it, when to do it within the movie, how to make pay payoff and how honestly to just structure a film around the two of them in a way where every single time you'll watch it, every time I knew watch I for the end for the rest of the time, it does have this magical pull of Pacino and De Niro just in terms of performers and just that feeling of you've seen it, you've seen them come together and share the scene before But you still anticipate the diner scene. You still anticipate getting those two guys face to face. It hasn't been cheapened at all either by the Irishman having them be in a movie together again. Heat is still heat. And those moments are still incredible. And yet with that, like, Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, like, these kind of performances, just amazing. Amazing. The supporting performances are so, so good. If you had like John Voight with his weird little ponytail mm-hmm. rat's tail thing that's got, going on. Um, it's just an all timer. It, it, but I guess part of it for Heat, I've already said it. It's like Heat does not need to be as good as Heat is. Like it would have taken its place in the history of cinema as the best of its kind, of a certain kind of movie. And that may sound condescending, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's like, you could set out to make a genre movie, you can love and appreciate genre movies, and you can make one that is just truly something spectacular. Man did that, and yet he packs it with so much more to elevate it beyond what you just expect of that. He's unique, really is. it just, there's very little like that comes up to it that tries to do what it does, manages to do it, and then does so much more. You just can't find anything else like Heat.
2: Yeah, and if someone tries it's a cheap imitation and doesn't come close uh yeah i mean i was it'd been a while since i'd gotten back into this and you, you have the things that stand out in your mind um and like the, the the moments that just like come to you like the like i said pacino questioning uh what's his name hank's area or the diner scene
1: that's a good uh, one take.
2: what what one thing that I couldn't stop thinking of when I was watching this movie is, you know, we're hot off the heels of, hot on the heels, whatever it is, uh, of watching just an, an all timer Robert De Niro performance in a Martin Scorsese film. But he's not cool in Killers of the Flower Moon. He's so cool in Heat, and you wonder or you have no question in your mind about like why someone would just chat him up and, and like find interest in him despite his nefarious like lifestyle and choices much like
1: like goodfellas like the yeah yeah the jimmy conway neil mccauley energy like uh, like a very handsome guy one of the all-time leading men i i don't think de niro has ever looked more cool has ever looked like more just again kind of a one-of-one like i am robert de niro than that kind of era And I really like the way that comes across on screen in those two of his most iconic roles, I think speaks volumes, but I, there's a real shared DNA between Jimmy Conway and Neil McCauley for me.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, completely agree with that. Um, you mentioned Val Kilmer. I think this is just like the best use of that particular look that he had. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, Pete, one word, if you have to describe it, it's just, like, iconic, and then I would would love to see it in a theater. Adam, it was, like, a year ago, six months ago, whatever it was, you told me, like, anytime you get a chance to see, like, some sort of, uh, was it repertory Mm -hmm. theater, um, you need to do it, and I've been doing that lately, my options haven't been great lately, but obviously... Anyone that listens to this podcast knows I love The Last Waltz, so I saw that a few months after our podcast. I saw Rosemary's Baby uh, on Sunday for the first time on a big screen. If Heat is playing near me, Adam, I'm going to
1: see it. I'm seeing Days of Heaven tomorrow as it is. It's always, it's always good to have the opportunity, something you're like, yeah, okay, that's, that's that'll be nice to go see in a big screen. I think the the good thing is, again, I'm going to keep saying if, and part of this because Michael Mann is 80 years old, uh, apparently, I think Heat 2 will take a lot of money to finance. It might take a lot of long time to shoot, but if he 2 does come to fruition, you can guarantee, like, honestly, you're probably pretty full scale re release, maybe six months ahead of time of Heat. Um, and, and probably a pretty wide run, even if, if it somehow didn't get to that. Well, you can guarantee repertory theaters would look to capitalize. So, it's an extra reason to want Heat 2 is the fact that. You could expect, I think, a lot of heat screenings and cinemas all across the world if he, too, comes to fruition.
2: I thought you were going to say um, he might not get made because he may run for president and be distracted. So, just given his age.
1: Honestly, I think uh, America might be in a much better place if Michael Mann was to the next president. He is, he is draw, razor I'll, sharp.
2: I'll draw up the posters.
1: Listen, there's definitely a cohort that Michael Mann could get their vote right now, just immediately. No, no campaigning needed, and there be nothing wrong with that. Um, I mean, that Does it? Fury excellent. If for some reason you missed it, do go and check it out. Is it the best film Mann has ever made? No, because that is a silly kind of high standard. But is it better than most filmmakers ever make? yes absolutely go watch it i don't think you'll regret it it's a it's a very very impressive film but i i do think it's an enjoyable watch even if there are scenes which can definitely not be described as enjoyable within uh we're going to pivot up our plans slightly we said we're going to do yorgos antum and poor things we may still do that um but just in terms of making sure we kind of check certain things off prioritize the right way Our next episode is going to be on the zone of interest and the films of Jonathan Glazer. So if you're looking to get any homework done to get ahead of things, if you have not seen the zone of interest, uh, this is a case where it is good timing for us to say this. I mean, it has been very, very slowly expanding. It is as close to nationwide as it is going to get in the US. It is playing wide in the UK and Ireland. I can't speak for other territories beyond that. Apologies if you're listening for somewhere else. I haven't covered that, but if you can see the zone of interest, do go and see it. And if you want to, or you're inclined, you know, go watch Sexy Beasts, go watch Burt, go watch Under the Skin. Not a not a large filmography, but wow does it pack a punch! I look forward to talking about Glazer with you on the next episode. Otherwise, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let's make time for this. You should also check out the Eurostep Podcast Network, the main feed here at GSPN for all things Milwaukee Books, Cruising for a Bruising for all things Milwaukee Brewers, and Togger's Wonder for everything Green Bay Packers. Well, until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you. Henry. Thanks, Adam.